Hello, and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's episode, we pick back up our step-by-step journey through Ezekiel, looking at chapters 4 and 5 in the start of Ezekiel's actual prophecies. In the middle of these dramatic and acted-out oracles, we'll encounter some important realities about God's actions in the world, the expectations he gives us, and the ways he disrupts our ordinary lives to teach us those things. Well, today's going to be fun, and also kind of challenging, but fun. Because even though we've done some more in-depth probing into the first three chapters of Ezekiel, we've still kind of been in big picture mode. But today is really where the rubber meets the road. We're out of the introduction and into the thick of it as the prophecies of this provocative God burst open. All right, so let's dive in. Kind of like all of Ezekiel 1 through 3 was a literary unit, but we divided it up over two weeks on the podcast. We're going to do the same thing with this. You can group chapters 4 to 7 all together with its common themes and unfolding message. But we're going to split it up into two weeks. This week we'll cover chapters 4 and 5, and next week we'll cover chapters 6 and 7. We're also going to do things a little bit differently today to spice it up. Instead of having someone read all of chapters 4 and 5 in one sitting for us, Brennan Colby is going to read a section at a time, and we'll unpack what's being said as we go. Then, at the end, we'll tie it all together with some key takeaways. Now, if you remember from the introduction of Ezekiel, chapters 2 and 3 were some intense preparation for the prophet to get him ready for his difficult job and his stubborn audience. The Lord even has to use the metaphor of a watchman to get through to Ezekiel and wake him up to take responsibility for what God has tasked him with. His task, according to chapters 2 and 3, is to say to the people what the Lord gives him to speak, whether they hear or refuse to hear. But throughout that entire thing, we don't really know what the message is. And that's where we pick up in chapter 4. The commissioning is over. It's time for the start of this ministry, for the start of these actual prophecies the message that God calls Ezekiel to proclaim to his people. This is Ezekiel 4 and 5 in the English Standard Version. Chapter 4 And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you, and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it, and build a siege wall against it, and cast up a mound against it, Set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. And you, take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and set your face toward it, and let it be in a state of siege, and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. So chapters 4 and 5 are filled with a bunch of many symbolic demonstrations like this one that go together to depict Jerusalem's destruction. Towards the end of this, God gives an interpretation of what it all means. But even the interpretation is a prophetic proclamation. So it might be better to think about this as the word of the Lord seen and the word of the Lord heard. 
And here we're just getting started out in the word of the Lord scene part. You, mortal, God tells Ezekiel in chapter 4, verse 1, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, Jerusalem. The first of the multi-part sign acts, as they're called, was a brick model of Jerusalem. Only the model Jerusalem is being sieged with battering rams against it. The exiles may be far from their beloved state capital, but Ezekiel is told to put it right back in the center of their attention. Only this time, it's depicted the way God sees it, the way God will make it, sieged and taken over. Now, the second of the sign acts, starting in verse 4, shifts the focus onto Ezekiel as he embodies the message and depicts it through his actions. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you, so that you cannot turn from one side to the other, till you have completed the days of your siege. Notice how things are amping up more and more the further into this section that we get. All the way from the beginning of chapter 4 to the end of chapter 7 and onward even. Ezekiel isn't just setting up a stage prop. He is a stage prop. He becomes a symbol in what he does and doesn't do. He actually embodies what the people are being warned about and the message that's being prophesied. For 390 days, Ezekiel is to lay on his left side and 40 days on his right side, representing the years of the sentences, the just punishments for Israel and Judah, respectively. That's the northern and the southern parts of the old kingdom. And as Ezekiel is on his right side facing that brick model of Jerusalem, representing the southern kingdom's punishment, With his arm barred, he's actually prophesying against the brick city in that position, with cords binding him so he can't even turn. So when I call these many symbolic demonstrations earlier, I'm not talking about how long they actually lasted or how dramatic they were, just how many verses they span. This mini demonstration lasted over a year. These were not song and dance performances that fought for your short-lived attention span like a quick commercial. These were tangible, unavoidable, physical representations of how God would act in the world that stood out like awkward statues in the middle of their ordinary lives. And that forced them to think through what it all meant for their ordinary lives. It's all very involved, too being bound, facing certain directions, prophesying against the model city. It'd be a shame to just read these prophecies to get at what they symbolize. 
Because the acting out, the embodiment, the physical representation is all part of the communication. It's all part of the strategy to get through to these people and to get through to us. If we can see this all happening in our living room, if we can imagine walking by the prophet's house down the street and seeing him on his side, tied up, calling out a brick-model Jerusalem, then we're a little closer to getting it right. But there's more to the package presentation. Even Ezekiel's diet is part of the prophecy. And it's not pretty. It's actually disgusting, and that's the point. And you, take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it. And your food that you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day, from day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen. From day to day you shall drink, and you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up till now I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beast, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung, on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this, that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. Ezekiel's diet consists of bread, but impure bread in multiple senses. The wheat is mixed with all sorts of other random grains, showing how scarce the basic necessities like bread and water will be. He's measuring out his water consumption, and oh yeah, the mixed bread is baked over human dung. At this point, Ezekiel pipes up with an objection that's probably a mixture of despair and piety. Ah, Lord God, I've never defiled myself like this, verse 14 says. From my childhood up to now, I've never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts or tainted meat. So Ezekiel, the priest, the one who was supposed to help people separate the holy from the unholy, the ritually clean from the ritually unclean, is shockingly told to violate cleanliness in all senses in the sight of everyone, and it's enough to make him beg. So God does show some mercy, despite trying to intentionally shock and wake these people up because he allows Ezekiel to cook over cow's dung. But that whole exchange shows how serious and extreme and offensive this all is. How it's supposed to be. If the prophet himself can barely keep it together, how might the average exile seeing this react? And yet God says, 
look, this is what it will be like in Jerusalem. This is what's actually coming. And that's why you're actually seeing it here with Ezekiel. And then chapter 5 starts out with one final sign act. And you, O son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. And a third part you shall take and strike with your sword all around the city. And a third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheathe the sword after them. And you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. And of these again you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will come out into all the house of Israel. Talk about a dramatic conclusion. While I was preparing this podcast, I heard gunshots from outside. Probably just someone doing target practice, but it made me tense up, made me alert and on edge, aware of present dangers. Seeing Ezekiel do all this with his beard hair, carefully measured into thirds, swinging swords and burning fires, has that same effect. It it makes the people alert to the real and present danger, not just of the Babylonians, but ultimately of the God who would find them out for their evil and rebellion. Even the people in places they thought were untouchable, like Jerusalem. So the rest of chapter 5 unpacks that in more direct verbal form. We've had our elaborate display of judgment, the shocking four-part panorama of embodied prophecy, and now that package is elaborated on. We switch from the word of the Lord seen to the word of the Lord heard. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I am against you and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments on you, and any of you who survive I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, Surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you, and a third part I will scatter to all the winds and will unsheathe the sword after them. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself, 
And they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you. When I execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes, I am the Lord. I have spoken. When I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, and when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Wow. Now, how is that okay? We're talking about God bringing about family cannibalism because the Israelites didn't go to temple on Sunday? Well, no. It's way worse than that and more complicated than that. We'll see later on in Ezekiel more explicit details about the terrible things the Israelites were doing at this time. The terrible things happening even in Jerusalem. But it's worse than the pagan nations around them that they were supposed to be witnesses to. And if you can imagine how awful ancient Near Eastern child sacrifices and exploitive acts of violence were, you know how bad it is when God says, you've somehow managed to do worse than that. And you think I'm just going to let that slide? No, I'm cleaning house. Now, in terms of the terrible things happening to Jerusalem as part of its punishment, like the family cannibalism, we have to remember what we're dealing with here. Both are human limitations and God's perfect character and wisdom. God holds people responsible for their evil. That's already clear in Ezekiel with the watchman analogy we talked about earlier. But if God uses a crooked stick to draw a straight line, that doesn't mean he's endorsing its crookedness. Everything will be straightened out. But as he breaks into history at this point in time, the just punishment for the unjust crimes of the Israelites is focused in the hostile takeover of Jerusalem. Now, implicit in these declared prophecies in the hairs that are left over in the folds of the robe, is a call for the listeners to wise up and align with God. Take him seriously. Stop bringing death upon themselves by rejecting the giver of life. But there's more to be said, actually. If we read these chapters on their own, it kind of sounds like God is just arbitrarily lashing out. Since you did X, I'll just do X ten times over to you because I'm having a temper tantrum. But if we have a more robust knowledge of the Bible and the story that's unfolding here, we'll realize this is not arbitrary at all. It's actually almost verbatim rehearsal of the covenant crimes and curses laid out in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. In other words, God is not lashing out haphazardly against his people so much as he's laying down the law 
of what they already signed up for in the early pages of the Bible. Ezekiel the priest would have known these Torah passages really well, and it would have made sense to him, and it should have made sense to the people. Just to make my case even stronger, a little spoiler, next week after this, chapters 6 and 7 will talk about tearing down the high places of idolatry with the slain surrounding them and so forth. So keep that in mind and let's look at that Leviticus 26 passage. Leviticus 26 comes towards the end of a very priestly book, setting up the nation for how it should live. And the chapter starts out with blessings, actually. If you walk in my ways, my good laws, God says, this relationship, then here's the good life and peace that you and the land will experience. But then there's the counterpart. If you disregard me, spurn my ways, and your soul hates my ways, and you break this covenant between me and the nation, here's what I will do. I will show up and be present, but in judgment. Leviticus 26, 26 and following says, When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste, and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste." Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate, while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. Sounds familiar, right? It's not only similar content, it's like scary similar wordage to what Ezekiel is describing. And even similar flow of thought. Baking bread to the terrible cannibalism to the high places being destroyed and so forth. These curses were not optional or random. They were embedded into the marriage contract, the constitution, the covenant relationship that God established with the nation of Israel. And the more we understand that, the more we have a grip on those first five books of the Bible, the more we'll understand Ezekiel. Again, with what Ezekiel is prophesying and embodying in these chapters, God is not lashing out haphazardly against his people. He's laying down the law of what they've already signed up for in the early pages of the Bible. And as much as I can work at explaining all that, we miss the point if we're only trying to explain away what makes this okay 
sitting in our ivory tower armchairs. The warning is real and present for Ezekiel's audience. It's right there in their face, pushing past their plugged ears like gunshots, an abrupt interruption to their normal TV program to bring them this important message. As evangelical Christians, we often take great comfort in God staying true to his word. He is dependable, our firm foundation. What he has said will happen, will happen, and nothing can stop that. And all that is tremendously true. But oftentimes we only think of that in terms of what benefits us. We think God will always stay true to his promises of eternal life and redemption and being with us to comfort us and take us to heaven. But when it comes to his justice and judgment, his calling every single person into account for what they've done or left undone, eh, you know, maybe he'll change his mind about that. Because we don't really think that's God's job a lot of the times, to be honest. He's the one who is supposed to break our chains, set prisoners free, and give abundant life, not the one who's supposed to slap the handcuffs on, put us in prison, and bring out the electrical chair. But ever since he created the universe and stooped down to care for and interact with us human beings, he's given us both blessings and curses, promises and warnings. Adam and Eve, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Israel, there are great blessings tied up in our covenant relationship if you keep in step with me. But there are great curses, incredible judgments, and disasters that I will bring down on your head if you take advantage of what I'm giving you to be a light to the nation so you can use it for your own evil purposes. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. All over the Bible, God proclaims his word to us, full of both promise and warning, blessings and curse, mercy and justice. And in the words of Job, shall we accept good from God and not accept disaster? That's exactly what Israel was trying to do in Ezekiel's day. They reveled in the blessings, the promises, the privileged status of their chosen nation totally ignoring, neglecting, dumbing down the warnings and curses, an end to the patient mercy. We can't afford to make that same mistake. As Ezekiel breaks in with a message from God so tangible and in their face they can't avoid it, let that get up in your face too. It's not just Old Testament stuff. The book of Revelation amps up the clay model of Jerusalem to be a life-size, cosmic-size model of the heavens and earth. 
The lion and lamb holds a sword in his hands in those pages. God is true to his word, every part of it. Not just the comforting parts, the probing, uncomfortable parts too. That's what makes him so dependable. He doesn't budge to adjust to our preferences. He maintains his word and his will and plan, even as he calls us out to accept it. We cannot presume upon the promises of God without truly accepting all that they mean. We can't revel in the blessings, the promises, the privileges of calling ourselves Christians while totally ignoring, neglecting, and dumbing down the warnings, the curses, the end to that patient mercy that's meant to lead us to repentance. If we're listening to the podcast as followers of Christ, this is not intended in any way to pronounce you condemned when Christ pronounces you redeemed. But the Apostle Paul draws on the Israelites' rebellion and punishment in the wilderness to tell the church at Corinth these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. They were written down for our instruction. Let's not think that just because the message in Ezekiel 4-5 to is negative, it's not relevant for us. Yeah, it's God's job to forgive. The judgment stuff is optional. No, we need to take him seriously. Both the forgiveness and the judgment he's promised will come. Will we just keep focusing on the parts that we like, expecting God to budge? Or will we listen to his probing sign acts and message and accept the full reality of how he will act in the world? In our world. This is the first time in the podcast where the rubber has met the road in Ezekiel. We've talked about features of the book in general. We've done some big picture theme tracing. We've looked long and hard at the first three introductory chapters. But today, we're out of the introduction and into the thick of it. Today, the prophecies of this provocative God burst open in these tangible sign acts. These extreme rhetorical strategies are part of what Ezekiel brings to the table that we would miss out on otherwise. So we want to make sure that's a big part of what we're hearing and seeing and digesting in this part of Scripture. With a brick model of Jerusalem and a bound-up prophet and burning hairs, God totally demolishes the idea that he's only relevant for abstract philosophers. As real as the headphones in your ears, the phone in your hand, the clothes on your back, the smell of your lunch, the sound of my voice, that's how real the coming actions of God in the world are. When we read these parts of Ezekiel, when we take communion at church, those tangible demonstrations of spiritual realities are not just abstract symbols to be decoded. The physicality of it, the embodied significance, the in-your-face reality of it, is part of how God chose to deliver the message, part of how we interact with it and respond. Something was coming for Jerusalem that these homesick exiles in a faraway land did not want to hear about. It's something they 
already should have known about, already should have processed, already should have changed their outlook and their behavior because it was all laid out in the Torah. But they, like us, were stubborn. They, like us, latched on to the promises God gave that they liked while ignoring the rest of them, hoarding the blessings but disregarding the counterpart curses, treating them like they were less real, less serious. Even if it's kind of uncomfortable, we need these parts of the Bible to ring like gunshots in our plugged-up ears so that we take God seriously and accept him for all that he is, merciful and just, and all the ways that he will act in our futures. Next week, Dr. Eric Tully will be joining us for the first of the month interview, sharing his incredible insights on the needed role of the biblical prophets in our lives. You definitely don't want to miss that. Then after that, we'll pick this up in chapters 6 and 7, as Ezekiel takes the people to court with even more amped up creative rhetorical strategies and will draw some of the things that we can glean from this entire section. But for now, ask yourself if you've been lopsided in your dependency on God. Have you been banking on his mercy and grace while downplaying his promises of justice and judgment? Or does our vision of God encapsulate all he's proclaimed to us in Scripture? Is that vision of God as real to us and urgent as a fire in front of us? Is it embodied in our lives? Is it a spiritual reality that has concrete implications and manifestations in our daily lives? Or do we tune it out in the middle of our regular program? Let's let Ezekiel interrupt it with breaking news and grow more humbled, dependent, confident, and selfless as followers of the Lord Christ. I was looking over an old hymn called Where Cross the Crowded Ways of Life, and uh, it really struck a chord with Ezekiel chapters 4 and 5 and what we were talking about today. And I was thinking in, in the hymn where it talks about the Son of Man, um, thinking it as the Son of Man being Ezekiel and thinking of it as the Son of Man being Christ, both seem to have kind of rich meaning to it. So anyway, I wanted to pray that hymn for us as we close, thinking on these chapters. Where cross the crowded ways of life, where sound the cries of race and clan, Above the noise of selfish strife, we hear your voice, O Son of Man. In haunts of wretchedness and need, on shadowed thresholds dark with fears, from paths where hide the lures of greed, we catch the vision of your tears. O Master, from the mountainside, make haste to heal these hearts of pain. Among these restless throngs abide, O tread the city streets again, till all the world shall learn your love and follow where your feet have trod, till glorious from your heaven above shall come the city of our God. <laughs>